session with Dr. Farid Holakou. Good evening and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tolakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram, or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and free podcast on iTunes. Again, the studio number 3104410555. Before I begin with the summary of the book for this past week, I wanted to announce the book for this week, which I'll talk about on next Monday's show. And this is a classic in the psychology and self-help literature. It is I'm Okay, You're Okay by Thomas A. Harris. I'm Okay, You're Okay, which uh, talks about transactional analysis, which I'll talk about next week, but also self-esteem as well. So hope you'll join me in reading this classic book, I'm Okay, You're Okay. But the book for this past week, which was a first-time read for me, it was The Evolution of Desire, Strategies of Human Mating, by David M. Buss, The Evolution of Desire. And when I read the book, um, I saw that a lot of the research that was in the book came from, um, or I'd seen a lot of it in different courses I'd taken, even in my undergrad that were very interesting, including some anthropology classes. Um, But it is a very good book, and it was much more controversial when it was released or published in 1994 than it is now. Um, but I'll talk a little bit about that as well. But it basically looks at the evolution of human mating, of romantic and sexual relationships. And one of the areas that really it's talking about, or a discipline that uh, focuses, or we could say the focus of this book is on, is evolutionary psychology. <clears throat> now, what is evolutionary psychology? So evolution, as we know, is how uh, any organism has evolved or has adapted to its environment to better survive its environment or really to pass their genes on more effectively. So we look at evolution, we see how some animal, can even be some microbe or even humans, how we've evolved different parts of our body, many times we talk about, or parts internally that have made it so we can survive better, really reproduce better. And usually when we think of evolution, we think of, okay, well, a bird slowly developed wings so that it could fly. Maybe because bird-like ancestors were in trees and when they would fall, um, they could die or get injured, but slowly they started to evolve these physical mechanisms of wings so that they could survive and that gradually evolved into wings that could fly. But rather than just focusing on the physical attributes or biological or physiology in evolution, What evolutionary psychology is looking at is, well, let's apply that same principle to look at how our psychology has evolved, our thoughts, our feelings and emotions, our desires, our interests, or things we even get disgusted by, that there should be some evolutionary explanation to what we see in our current psychology. 
and also that this psychology likely evolved in an environment that's very different from our modern world, back when we were hunter-gatherers, when we became human and then evolved over thousands of generations, that's very likely where our psychology developed or a lot of what we carry with us now. And so because of that, a lot of what we have within our heads, the thoughts, feelings, emotions that we have, although they can work in today's day and age, sometimes we're at a disequilibrium, meaning that what we have evolved or the environment we evolved in is different from the environment that we currently live in, and evolution really can't catch up to that. But evolutionary psychology also was more controversial in previous decades. Some people still don't like it very much, but I think it's hard not to think that our psychology also evolved along with our bodies, both externally and internally, to help develop the thoughts and feelings that were going to be most adaptive to survival and reproducing. So to me, it absolutely makes sense. And this book focuses on evolutionary psychology to understand romantic relationships, mating, uh, having children and child rearing, and all the things that go about it, and also who we are and are not attracted to, how we keep or how we, are, we get a mate and how we keep a mate, and so on and so forth. So one thing the book talks about a lot is differences between the sexes, between men and women. What are men attracted to and what are women attracted to in a mate and why this might be different things. So to begin with, we know that women bear a lot more of the burden when it comes to reproduction. Uh, the fertilization takes place within the woman, but also gestation, the pregnancy takes about nine months, and then breastfeeding. A lot of the primary caregiving is going to be dependent on the mother. So because of that, the mother almost has to invest three to four years into each child that it's going to bring about. Whereas for the man, the, the contribution is far less or can be far less. It's much more of a choice. Whereas for the woman, there is really no choice. Once the pregnancy starts, they are then committed to this child for several years. Of course, for the rest of their lives in some ways as well, but they don't have an opportunity to reproduce again for several years. So this itself creates a context that does relate to some of the strategies that men and women have evolved to best create the chances that their children and their genes will be passed on. So for women, what are they looking for? Well, for them, what's important is things like resources and someone who's going to invest their resources into, for, into their children, the children they have together. And this is why if we look even in today's society, we know that sometimes it's cliche and sometimes people even don't like to talk about this, but women will be attracted to someone who is wealthy, someone who has status, because that could also mean that they'll be able to provide resources, provide protection, have power within the community. So we know that power um, and resources are very important for women, and they were so even historically. They wanted a man who could provide for their offspring. They needed someone who would have the resources that'd be able to provide, who'd also be strong and can protect their offspring or can take care of them. And so women were attracted to these things. And if we see that, if we look at today's society, we do notice those same things, even though survival is very different now than it was back then. But women tend to be attracted more to resources. And because of that, women are a little bit less concerned about age or actually even will be attracted to men 
slightly older than them because the accumulation of resources is something that takes time. Most young men don't have a lot of resources, so women are more likely to be attracted to someone who's older. On the other hand, what are men looking for? Again, this is from the evolutionary perspective. So for a man, the, the mate they are looking for, especially for long-term mating, is someone who is young and also someone who is beautiful. Now, young is important because if you're going to mate long-term with someone, you want someone who has the largest reproductive window available. So someone who just can bear children may be a better choice than someone who's much older because you can have less children with someone who is older. Each child, especially um, in our evolutionary background and current hunter-gatherer societies, we can see it takes about three to four years between each birth because the mother is breastfeeding for a few years after the birth itself. So for a man, they're looking for someone who is going to be young and who's going to be beautiful because they have stronger genes and this is also a sign of good health. And that's, you know, what the book also looks at is, okay, we think of some things as, okay, we find this attractive. Well, why is that true? Things such as symmetry are attractive because when someone is symmetrical or very symmetrical, that means that they were not exposed to a lot of pathogens or they had a healthy immune system growing up, so they developed more symmetrically, even in their faces. And when they look at models, actors that are actors and actresses that are considered attractive, very often you see high symmetry in their faces. Or if you want to create a composite face, the more symmetrical you make it, the more attractive it is. And this is not by accident. There are some standards to beauty that have relevance to health and uh, strong genes that are kind of universal all across the world. People find symmetrical faces more beautiful. Even children, babies, uh, infants who really can't see very much, they're still, they'll focus more on a symmetrical face than an asymmetrical face. So the book looks at lots of different factors, including who we're attracted to, who we're not attracted to, and why, explaining differences between men and women and why they might be attracted to different things. Also talks about why we might have differences, for example, in approaching a sexual relationship. So for men, as I was saying before, the potential investment or loss they would have of having a sexual encounter is not very much. It could be as brief as a sexual encounter they have. Whereas for a woman, it's far more costly because if they have, uh, if they become pregnant from that interaction, then they can they will be responsible for this child for several years and they lose the opportunity to mate with someone else. So for them, they must be much more discriminant in who they mate with. And there are some classic studies recently that show this. So for example, they went on a college campus and they uh, had what they call confederates, meaning they're part of the experiment, go up to male students and female students. It was a female asking the male, the men and a male asking the females. They would say one of three things. One was, you know, basically, I've, I've noticed you around, would you want to go out with me tonight? So basically going on a date. The second question that some of them got was, would you come over to my apartment tonight? So a little bit vague, but of course, suggesting much more of a sexual nature and what they're looking for. And the third one was, would you go to bed with me tonight? Very clear and direct. So when it came to the date, would you be willing to go out with me tonight? Men and women were very similar. They both were around 50%. Men 50% women, 56%. Then when it went to, would you come to my apartment tonight? Here's where we see a big 
difference. Men were at 69% saying yes. So actually more than wanted to go on the date said yes to coming to the apartment, close to 70%. For women now, it dropped down to 6%. Only 6% were okay to come to the person's apartment that they didn't know. It was a a stranger. Now, even more of a uh, disparity we see when it comes to, would you come, would you want to go to bed with me tonight? Where for women, it was 0%. Not one of them said yes. Whereas for men, it was 75% said yes. Three-fourths of the men were willing to go to bed with com- relatively a complete stranger. And we could understand this from an evolutionary perspective because, again, for the man, there is very little cost in having the sexual experience, whereas for the woman, they are investing a lot more. And also, women, because they need resources to help them raise their offspring, they are looking for commitment much more than the man is. In those kinds of instances, they have to make sure they are finding someone who is willing to commit resources and time into child rearing so their children have a more likelihood of surviving. So here we can see men and women sometimes in the book goes into great detail about this, have different strategies that they are employing or looking for when it comes to mating. So this is a great book because it talks about a lot of different aspects of mating. And after the break, actually, I'll talk a bit about jealousy and infidelity, two very hot-button topics that the book talks about in a lot of detail, and why these things, first of all, something like jealousy, why does it exist? And also infidelity, well, why would men or women want to be unfaithful, or how can we understand that from an evolutionary perspective? And then I'll also talk a bit about my thoughts about this, because sometimes we hear, well, if something is natural, then we are destined to do it, or if it's in our genes, We must do it. And it's not really the case. It's much more complicated than that. So I'll continue discussion after the break on The Evolution of Desire by David Buss. If you want to talk about the book or have another question, feel free to call. Studio number is 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tulakwi. We'll be right back. Welcome back to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tolokwi. Before the break, I was talking about the book for this past week, The Evolution of Desire by David M. Buss. And uh, I didn't mention, but one of the studies he himself was involved with, uh, interviewed or surveyed over 10,000 people from 37 cultures around the world to see if there were universals that we could see in human mating and attractiveness and who we are attracted to. And of course, he cites many other studies throughout the book as well. But he was very cross-cultural in his uh, approach to see if, well, if we're looking at evolution for humans, it should be things that we see all across different cultures. Because many times we think of things as beauty, as culturally sanctioned. So cultures think this is attractive and other cultures think something else is attractive. And there are definitely Uh, things that fall under that umbrella where culture does affect things like what we are attractive to. But there are also some things that we universally do find attractive. So for example, as I mentioned before the break, men across the world are attracted to younger women. Or if we're looking at attraction, young is associated with beauty for men and they are attracted to them because they want someone who can provide many children for them. Again, because Our children are born altricial or they're born helpless. We need the investment from 
more than just one parent, more than just the mother, we need the father as well to be involved to help in the child rearing, to provide resources, protection, to provide um, status. Uh, there's also other men can come and attack the woman. They want protection in that way as well. But so the man, uh, so because we need to have long-term mating, although not always monogamous, which I'll talk about, because of the long-term mating for a man to invest his resources, it makes more sense for him to find someone younger. And for the woman, they are looking for more resources. And we see this, whether it's in Western societies, but also he talks about hunter-gatherer societies where if men don't have resources, very often they can't mate. No one will want to be with them, but the men who have some power or have resources, they're much uh, much more easily find a mate, even sometimes have several wives if they can uh, afford that. Because again, it is something about the resources. So we do see these universals. Uh, before the break, I did mention I wanted to talk about jealousy and infidelity. So anyone who has been in a romantic relationship has very likely felt that powerful pull of that emotion we call jealousy. Jealousy is that feeling of threat that someone else is going to take my partner away or my partner is going to be with someone else. Sometimes we use the word jealousy when we say someone has something we want. Really, that's envy. But jealousy is about losing something that we have or the threat of losing something that we have. And we use it especially when it comes to our romantic partners. And if you felt that feeling, I'm sure everyone has, it's a very strong one. And so and from an evolutionary perspective, how can we understand why we have this strong feeling? It doesn't feel very good, but there must be some benefit to it. Or let's see if there is some benefit to it. Why would we feel this negative thing, this thing that feels uncomfortable or painful, unless it had some benefits? And it absolutely does. We can understand it. So jealousy from the man's perspective can be very strong because we have what we call uncertainty of paternity in human beings. It is impossible for a man to be 100% certain that he is the father of the child because fertilization takes place within the female and also because humans, unlike some primates and some other animals, don't have a strict or a visual sign of when the female is ovulating to know when they are fertile. You don't really know. So it's impossible for the man to know if he is indeed the father, unless he goes on the Maury Povich show and they do one of those tests. But for our ancestors, they did not have that option. So the man doesn't really know. So for him, protecting his woman or the woman he's mated with from being with other men to make sure that he doesn't experience the very costly thing of being cuckolded, meaning that he is raising another man's child. And if we look at that from an evolutionary perspective, that is very costly. Not only are you not passing your genes on, but you're investing your resources into someone else's genes, someone else's child. So men had to learn to be very protective or to evolve this feeling of jealousy to then make sure that their mate was not with anyone else because it was really the most costly thing they could experience. And that's why men will feel this strong feeling of jealousy when they feel that threat. Now, women, on the other hand, their concern was more about the resources their partner had, because again, they needed the resources to be devoted to their children, the ones they were having with this man. But if they felt that he was straying and investing his resources somewhere else, or 
if because he is being more distant or being with other people, that might mean he's going to leave the relationship. These were big threats for women. And so they developed jealousy also to make sure that they were not losing the resources of their partner because they would need them. So they have these feelings of jealousy. Now, if we look at studies on jealousy, looking at sex differences between men and women, we actually find a pattern that does fit this evolutionary explanation or this understanding. Men tend to get more upset from a sexual affair. And women tend to get more upset if their husband, boyfriend is having an emotional affair. They both get upset about both, but some studies have found that men have a stronger reaction to sexual infidelity and women have a stronger reaction to an emotional affair. Now, why does that make sense? Because for the man, he has more to lose when it comes to someone who is going to be with their woman sexually, because again, they might be then uncertain of their paternity and raise someone else's children. And for the woman, she is more concerned about the person or uh, they are with investing their resources with someone else. And this is actually why sometimes men think, well, the affair doesn't matter because it was just sexual. And sometimes women might feel the same way for them because that's something they might not feel as concerned about. Whereas men will be upset if the, their female partner had a sexual relationship. If it was just love letters and other things, they might still be very distraught but it might be easier for them to deal with. They might have less of a reaction. So we can understand this from an evolutionary perspective, this difference in uh, reactions towards different types of infidelity. Now, infidelity itself, how do we understand that? Why would people be unfaithful? So we were monogamous, long-term mating, that's what we see, but we do see that infidelity was a part of our ancestral uh, background, or our ancestors did that, but we also, of course, see it in today's modern society as well. So why would people do that? So for the women, there could be a few things going on. One is, well, if you have access to a male who might even have stronger genes, it might be good for you to try to get that person's genes and to raise them. And even actually, um, there wasn't in this book, at least the, the edition that I have, but I've seen studies where women can be attracted to different types of men or different basically levels of masculinity based on where they are on their menstrual cycle. So if they're more fertile, they're actually going to be even more attracted to hyper-masculine men who might have stronger genes because that would be a good time to then be with that individual and have his genes passed on. And then later in their cycle, they're more attracted to more less masculine men who will be more likely to nurture them and take care of them and provide resources, be committed to them. So it makes sense women can be unfaithful with a strategy, um, I know that could sound really bad, but with the strategy of getting the strongest genes and then having someone support them and invest their resources. Also, women could get resources from uh, having relationships with other men, could all create alliances, you know, have protection from other men. So there's reason why females would stray, would be unfaithful. Now, for men, the desire might be even stronger because since they don't have to carry the child, they don't are not responsible or don't have that obligation of carrying a child, they can have relationships with many different women and pass on their genes to many different women at the same time, essentially, or during the same time period. So a woman, female, can only have really one baby in a year, of course, unless they have 
twins or triplets, but let's just say one pregnancy, whereas a man could essentially have unlimited amounts or not literally unlimited, but a very high number. The volume or the variance is much higher for men. So a man can be committed to one woman, but then by having short-term sexual relationships with other women could potentially pass on more of their genes. So evolutionary, evolutionarily speaking, this could be a strategy, and he uses that term strategy in the book, that would be beneficial for passing on their genes. Now, so we can read this and say, well, it's in our DNA or it's in our evolutionary background to cheat. And sometimes people say this, especially men. They say, oh, it's not natural for a man to be with just one person or a man needs to spread his seed, so to speak, or needs to be with multiple people. It's just natural and it's unnatural for them not to be. Now, this word natural is one that can be used really uh, incorrectly at times, or maybe not incorrectly, but in a way that takes it a little bit too far, actually, in something that uh, David Buss in this book talks about, the naturalistic fallacy, that sometimes we think, well, if something is quote-unquote natural, that makes it good or makes it better or makes it okay morally, which is not the case. We can understand that something is natural but decide not to do that. Um, if a baby is born with a really poor health, we can say naturally that baby would just die. But of course, in today's day and age, when we have the technology, we want to do everything we can to save that baby. We're not going to just let nature take its course. We're going to intervene with everything we can to try to save that baby's life. We value the life much more than we value just something being quote-unquote natural or letting evolution take its course. We have, in some ways, morally or emotionally evolved past that. We don't just accept that. And the same can be true or said about when it comes to things like infidelity. Yes, there can be a desire to be unfaithful or an attraction to other people, but it doesn't mean that we necessarily are destined to act on it or we have to act on it or even that we're exonerated or we are somehow not guilty if we act on that because we can say, oh, well, I'm a man, I have to, or I'm a woman and it was for these reasons I had to do it. Absolutely not. When we make a commitment to someone, if you make that commitment to be faithful, you're responsible to maintain that commitment, to maintain your fidelity to your partner. He also talks about, and we can use this as a analogy or a parallel, we are very much uh, enjoy the tastes of things that are fatty, sweet, high in protein and salty. And the reason for this is because those weren't very common for ancestors to come upon. They didn't find those types of things often. But when they did, because they wouldn't come upon them often, they would have to eat or it was good for them to eat about as much of it as they could to store up on nutrients, to store up on calories, because they wouldn't know when their next meal would come. But of course, now we live in a very different environment. You can not even get out of your car, drive to a drive through and get two, 3,000 calories worth of fatty, salty, protein um, foods and enjoy it without using any calories at all. And it's very unhealthy. Here's another way that we are in a disequilibrium with the world that we currently live in. So we can say, well, naturally we're attracted to those foods or they taste very good to us and our ancestors would eat as much of them as they could. So we should do the same. No, absolutely not. We're going to be very unhealthy if we follow that because our ancestors had a very different environment. So just because something is natural or somehow we have a desire for it doesn't mean we just act on it. 
and we need to act on it. So when it comes to our relationships and maintaining fidelity and staying faithful, yes, we can understand the attraction. And actually, I think reading a book like this or understanding the theory could let us become more aware of, okay, I have this attraction to, let's say, if you're a married man to other women, but that doesn't mean I'm supposed to act on it or that it's good for me to act on. I can understand where it's coming from based on evolutionary psychology that I have this attraction. Uh, I might feel like a strong desire. Yes, my my psychology is telling me it's good to go spread your genes, so I'm feeling such a strong desire, but it's not something very real or something I need to act on. And then interestingly enough, yes, the desire that we have to approach, let's say, other women as a married man comes from the desire to have children with them from an evolutionary perspective. But most men who are having affairs go through extreme lengths to make sure they don't have children with those women because they don't want to get themselves in trouble to either get caught or, the, and, or have that responsibility now of the child. So we see how, although the desire is the same, the end we, our ancestors were looking for is very different from what we're looking for now. Now it's more, we think it's for just the pleasure or to act on that desire, but before it was to procreate or create more children to potentially pass on our genes. So I think it's very dangerous to use arguments from evolutionary psychology to say it's okay to do certain types of behaviors to say okay well because i'm a man and i'm supposed to have jealousy if my wife is doing this or that i can even become angry or rageful about it no you still are very responsible for your actions and your behaviors and just because something comes from our evolutionary past doesn't mean that it is uh, okay or we can condone acting in those ways. So if you read a book like this and it tells you, oh, I guess I'm allowed to have that affair I was thinking about having, I think you're drawing the wrong conclusion. It is important to read books and understand evolutionary psychology and books like this that talk about the evolution of desire, romantic relationships, love, and mating, to understand some of the desires, the thoughts, the feelings that we have when it comes to relationships, to understand where we are coming from, and as he himself talks about in the book, but also so we can better prepare ourselves and create a better present and future for ourselves in our relationships. We are not destined by our past or our evolution. It is just part of the process that makes us who we are, and then we get to decide what we want to do, make the best choices for ourselves, which for me, if you're in a romantic relationship and you've committed to someone, that means you are responsible to maintain that fidelity for the rest of your life. Are there desires? Will there be attraction? Absolutely. And based on this book, we can understand why. Does that mean you need to act on them? Absolutely not. So I hope you'll read this book if you haven't already, The Evolution of Desire. And again, the book for next week is I'm Okay, You're Okay by Thomas Harris. Okay, we've reached our second commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tulakwi. Welcome back to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tulakwi. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hi. Hello. Hi. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Sure. I really appreciate it. Thanks for calling. Uh, really, the words can't help me appreciate what you do and your father do. Um, oh, thank you. I really enjoy your program, and I do learn a lot. And I try not to miss it, even though the timing doesn't really work <laughs> for me because I'm calling from Toronto, but I try to catch it or listen to it when you upload on your SoundCloud. Well, I appreciate that, and I'll, I can speak for myself. Say it's 
a pleasure to get to do the show each week. So thank you for your kind words and thank you for calling. Oh, no problem. Thank you. Uh, so the question is about myself. I have, um, I, at the beginning, I thought uh, I have a hard time choosing a guy to date with. But when I think a little deeper, it's just my guess. I don't know how true my guess is. Uh, I think I have this hidden anger towards uh, Persian men, mm -hmm. uh, especially the ones that have been raised or have been born there and have been raised there, because I totally see the difference between men, Persian men, that have been born here or have been raised here, adopted the North American culture, versus men that have been raised in Iran. They have this mentality that they're above uh, women and um, they're just better than them and mm -hmm. women are just stupid even though they don't say it directly but they do imply um, imply it that they're just better women are stupid they can't drive uh, they can't they're not just capable of as capable of uh, as men are um, and I, I think that's the reason I cannot choose the right person to settle, um, to settle down with. I don't know how, uh, I just wanted to see your opinion. Okay, yeah. I mean, there's definitely a lot in what you, you were saying. Um, also, just get a little background on yourself. How old are you? Uh, I'll be 32 in a month. Okay, and how long ago did you leave Iran? About uh, eight years and a half ago. Okay, so you're like 25 or 26. Yeah. Okay. Something around. Oh, yeah. Okay. And then, um, how? Tell me about your own father. What was he like? I'm sorry. Say that again. Your own, your father. What was he like? Oh, mm, uh, I don't see him as a father because he was not a good father. I don't really blame him. He had mental issues. Mm, he tried so hard to be a good father, but mm -hmm. he couldn't because of his own reason. Okay, what kind of uh, mental issues do you know what his diagnosis was? Uh, anger, depression, anxiety, Okay. narcissism, <laughs> okay. a bunch of others. Sounds like lots, yeah, sounds like a whole cocktail of things. Okay, so he was not a very, so I imagine he was not a very uh, loving father. You're saying he wasn't really in your life too much. So there could be some level of, an anger towards men in general. So we have to keep an eye on that, that because of your father and seeing how he was, you might have some of that. Now, what you're saying about um, Persian men, we're not, we're not going to generalize, of course, but the more traditional, uh, whether they're uh, Iranian-Canadian or Iranian-American or still in Iran, the more traditional they hold on to the values and the gender roles of the Iranian culture... It's very much a patriarchy, definitely male-dominated. Men are considered better than women. Even I know I've heard stories where grandmas will, will count only their uh, male grandchildren or their male kids. You know, the further back you go, you know, the, the girls and women almost didn't count. And so there definitely is that bias. Unfortunately, it's one that I think continues to hold countries like Iran and other countries back because... They don't give enough power and rights to women, both in education and also in political power and positions of power. And that actually holds them back much more than other countries. Of course, even somewhere like the United States, we still have a ways to go to, to really reach equality. But 
definitely further ahead than somewhere like many of the countries in the Middle East. So your experience is likely one based in reality to some degree. Most uh, Persian men that are going to be more traditional, they're going to want that in their relationship. And even what you talked about, I've experienced um, both within personal life, but also professional life. Lots of Iranian men, they'll say they want a woman who is strong and educated, but when they are in a relationship with one, they actually don't like how it feels because they might feel intimidated. They want to feel that differential. And that's important. And that's something, just let me say this, and I definitely want to hear what you have to say, because one of the big things we talk about in relationships, especially long-term relationships, is match. The more similar you are, the better. Then the more different you are, the more challenges you're going to create. Culture is a very big one. But within culture, even it's maybe even something separate, but within culture to some degree, is gender roles. And how similar the husband and wife see gender roles is very important in how their marriage is going to go. So if, for example, you think men and women are equal, but you're with a man who thinks that men are better than women or the man should have much more power in the relationship, you're going to face a lot of problems and you're going to face a lot of challenges. So it is important for you to find someone, a man who you feel sees gender roles the same way. So when we look at culture, science, people think, okay, do we speak the same language or we have the same interests? Those are important too, but even more important are things like values and gender roles and what we have as expectations in a relationship and how we view men and women, because that could really create so much conflict that you would likely never be happy with someone who saw men as better than women because you would always feel disrespected and put down. Some women who might hold on to the traditional values might actually want that type of relationship. Although I think it's at the essence, not the healthiest relationship because true love to me is between two equals, but nonetheless, they might be more comfortable in that, that type of relationship. Uh, yeah, but the problem is I don't find that man. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, you have to keep looking. Now, um, if, you know, that could be, you know, again, with Iranian men, even the ones that were born here, I know you're saying that maybe the more westernized, I don't want to say Americanized because I know you're in Canada, they might be more open to a more equal uh, male and female relationship. However, I've also noticed that because in their own families very often there was that differential, so although they might be growing up here and hearing about women's rights and feminism and think it all intellectually sounds very good, at an emotional level because of the marriage they observed between their mother and father, they might not be as comfortable in that type of relationship. So you do have to look for that and you have to be aware of that. And I would hope you don't give up hope thinking that, well, there isn't that type of a man out there because there definitely is, but you might end up seeing a lot of men that don't have that type of gender value or gender roles uh, that you're looking for or the way they look at the look at men and women and you won't be happy with someone like that. So I would say definitely don't give up hope on that. And uh, thank you so much for your advice, but mm -hmm. what can I do with this anger I have inside me? Because yeah. uh, I can see that it's giving me a lot of problems and mm -hmm. I did talk about it with my therapist and my Good. therapist is a, is a woman and she said, that's the way guys are, just take it or leave it. Well, I mean, to me, it depends on the degree of what we're talking about. Um, I don't know what you're looking at. When you say take it or leave it, can you think of an example of what you were telling her? Uh, 
I'm sorry. Can you, can you share an example of what you, you were talking about with your therapist where you said, she said, take it or leave it, that's how guys are? Oh, oh, I, I said, they're just, I think they're better than women, and if they see a strong woman, they get threatened, and uh, she said, that's the way they are. Just don't show your strong side to them. Just let them think they're better, they're stronger, they're wiser. <laughs> don't show your true side to them, otherwise they get threatened. That's the way they are. Just play the game with them. Yeah, I mean, well, okay, so <laughs> I, I don't agree with her fully. because, But I, I would say that many women for generations have done that, although... They saw themselves not as less than, but in order to keep the harmony of the relationship, they let the man feel greater than them. Now, I definitely would argue that that's not going to lead to the happiest relationship, and especially for yourself. Um, are there some ways that men and women are different ways we want to feel about certain things? Yes. So even when it comes to making money, although uh, women now are very often in relationships making more than the man the book actually that i was talking about today the evolution of desire talks about how it very often can lead to conflict and divorce i think this book was written a while ago and we're getting better about it but still there are things that for us for men and women can be difficult to to digest or to accept but i would definitely not recommend it anyway for you to hold yourself back so that some man wouldn't feel threatened by you and to play their game I would say keep looking and find someone and really this might be something that you're going to sniff out pretty quickly. How is this man going to view me as a person, as an equal or someone below him? Um, but also the anger you have, I'm glad you're in therapy because you, you're very likely going to have issues related to men because of your father and the way you described him. So you might already go into the relationship with some type of anger towards men. That's going to make it hard for you to really accept a man or not project that way you feel about your father onto that person. Exactly. And um, the other reason that I really appreciate your program was I did real, I was about to step into a really abusive uh, relationship. I uh, suddenly felt so strong for a man, for a man mm -hmm. and I went into a relationship with him. And then after two months, I realized this guy has the same personality as my dad, and that's the reason I was drawn to him in the first mm -hmm. place. And I really, really owe it uh, to you and your father because uh, you two do talk about it a lot. Yes. And I realized, hey, that was the reason I chose this guy. So yeah. after that, when I see another man, I just go through the checklist. <laughs> if he has the same personality well, as my dad. Well, I'm glad you were able and to do that. Well. Well, the thing is, you know, and I'm glad you were able to recognize it, and absolutely, we tend to be drawn to people that are like our parents, especially the opposite sex parents, and even the way you described it, sometimes it feels like this incredibly strong pull, like, wow, I'm so attracted to this person, even that love at first sight type of a feeling, which usually is a huge red flag, and I'm glad you were able to recognize that after just two months, even though that might have been two months too many, but many people end up marrying and staying with the very wrong type of person. And what I always tell people, especially if you had some a lot of dysfunction in your family and a bad relationship with your opposite sex parent, you have to almost convince yourself or be able to prove to yourself and people around you that the person you're falling in love with is not like your parent. Because we know how likely it is that you're going to be attracted to that type of person. But I will say this, in the way you're saying every man I see 
or I, I feel has those, you might be still attracted to and attracting those types of men even more. Yes, Iranian men can have those tendencies, so it's not so rare to find those types of men. But the way you're saying every man I come across has this feeling and flavor to me that you are somehow seeking or also being sought out by those types of men. So that's something you have to, to be aware of, that am I attracting these types of men? Am I still initially being attracted to those wrong types of guys? And then it's just confirming, oh, see, all guys are jerks or all guys are going to see women as less than them. So maybe there's part of you that wants to confirm what you already believe and is actually maybe even afraid to find that man that will genuinely love you and will genuinely see you for what you are and treat you as an equal. Exactly. And um, I think the older I get, it is uh, harder for me to choose the one because I can see better now. And I don't know, um, because I know there is nobody that has zero anxiety, as you always say. And I do see it in people around me, not just in men, like in general, I do see it. I sense it more now in people around me, uh, depression, anxiety, mm -hmm. um, stress. So I do see it and I do feel it in them. I don't know, like how much of it is a healthy person has the same level of anxiety as me, has more, less. I don't know, because when I see it in people, like let's say in, when I see it, see a guy has anger issues, and um, I, I feel kind of get scared. Like I see, like this guy has the same personality as my dad, so this is not mm -hmm. the type type guy for me. But I I do see it in everyone. Like like I I would say in Persian man because um, mm -hmm. of the background they're coming from. I see it in all of them. Well, let me stop. You know, I just have about a minute left till we have to stop the show, and there's definitely a lot to discuss here. So if you would like to call back, feel free. But again, when you say every, those words every, always, never, they usually come from our childhood. So that still tells me that you're, yes, everyone has some, everyone has to have anger. I mean, anger issues is one thing, but anger is an emotion that everyone should have and experience and express. But when you're telling me every man has this, it just still sounds to me like it's coming somewhere from your childhood. We didn't get to delve deep enough into it, but I'm very happy you're going to therapy and I'd say continue doing so to really understand better how much of this is what I'm actually seeing or how much of it am I projecting from my own past and my own experiences because I do get that sense and I hope you heard what I said before because maybe you're afraid to find the right guy because you have fears of intimacy based on what you've been through. Again, I do have to wrap up so I would really enjoy to talk more about this with you another time. But think about those things. I'm happier in good hands going to therapy. Keep going and keep uh, working on that. And maybe call back and we'll talk sometime soon, okay? Okay, sure. Thank you uh, so much for your time. My pleasure. Have a great night. Okay, we reached the end of the show. Again, the book for this coming week, I'm Okay, You're Okay by Thomas Harris. Thank you to the caller. Thank you all the listeners and to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tulakwi. Have a wonderful night. <laughs>